News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Still lots of watching and waiting about what is going on in the United States. Will former President Donald Trump be arrested? He said he's going to be, that he expects to be. So what is going on with that whole situation down there? Well, we'll find out right now. Reggie Cicchini joins us now, our Global Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, what is going on where you are? Uh, So I'm standing right outside of the uh, courthouse where the grand jury Uh, is expected to convene possibly this hour. uh, And this could be the hour uh, that this this panel begins its vote on whether or not to indict former U.S. President Donald Trump. There is a lot of security. There are a lot of police. In fact, the entire New York Police Department has been told to be in uniform during this ordeal should something take place on the streets. There are some protesters. There are some counter-protesters. But it hasn't been as kind of violent that uh, that some people thought it might have been following that call from Donald Trump. Yeah, what is the security like then there? A lot of barricades up? What have they done in anticipation of this? Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is a sprawling legal complex. Uh, there are a number of courthouses. Uh, a significant number of them are behind metal barriers. There are metal barriers kind of running up and down the street, also protecting the media from some traffic. Uh, but I can also point out that there are uh, 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 barriers that are surrounding Trump Tower up in Midtown Manhattan and back in D.C. The U.S. Capitol also has found itself back behind uh, security fencing. And this all stems from those comments from Trump that he made on his social media account over the weekend for his supporters, his base to, quote unquote, take back the nation and get out, uh, get out in protest. Uh, and, and we've been in a situation before, Simi, where Donald Trump's words have carried consequences. Uh, and so police uh, and, and local officials in cities here, Washington and down in West Palm Beach are taking all precautions necessary. Okay, so what do we actually know about the proceedings and what is going on with them right now, Reggie? So when it comes to the proceedings, we we fully believe that they have wrapped up. Unless there is a surprise witness to be called, uh, there is a real chance that voting could take place today because this grand jury only sits on Mondays and Wednesdays. And on Monday, we believe the final witness was called, and that was uh, uh, somebody who was testifying in defense of Donald Trump, since Trump himself had declined to uh, testify. If no other witnesses are called, this this realistically could go towards a vote. And if the indictment is handed down, number one, it would be uh, historic. No, no former president has ever been indicted on charges before, but it would also become a domino effect of where uh, information would have to be transmitted to Trump's team in Mar-a-Lago. That would result in uh, Trump having to figure out how to get to New York to be arraigned before a judge. Uh, and then that would start the process again of Trump having to be fingerprinted and get his mugshot taken. But ultimately, uh, from what we understand from legal experts, if an indictment is signed today, it would go to Trump's team and then it would be up to Trump if he wants to release it publicly. Right. Has there been any indication then from his lawyers about what they know or how this might go? No, his his legal team has, has been quiet and partly, in fact, that that Trump is now facing additional kind of legal problems linked to the uh, situation in Mar-a-Lago with classified documents, with new reporting from that overnight. And that kind of is taking some of the oxygen from the proceedings here in New York. Uh, but ultimately, his legal team hasn't come out and said much. We should say point out that uh, 
members of the Republican Party have been fairly vocal over the last few days, calling this uh, this kind of hearing politically motivated, calling it a witch hunt, saying that again, uh, that it goes against what the, the usual norms are in this country. So we're hearing from the politicians. We are not hearing from the lawyers. Okay. And again, though, we should remind people, Reggie, how long has this grand jury proceeding been going on? I mean, doesn't this all have to do with his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen? This has to do with a hush money payment that was uh, that was made to alleged or to, to cover up an alleged affair with Stormy Daniels, and this uh, this grand jury has been meeting for weeks and weeks and weeks now, and they heard multiple times from Michael Cohen, Trump's former fixer and attorney, who was the star witness for the prosecution, uh, who was the one who said Donald Trump knew about these payments. Donald Trump uh, ultimately signed off on them, and and cooked the books, essentially, uh, to make this look like a business expense and not some form of hush money payment. And remember, Michael Cohen served uh, jail time for uh, campaign finance violations in relation to these payments. So while this is not something at the federal level, this is at the state level. It has been going on for weeks. And if this grand jury is meeting today, it could signal that it is coming to a rapid close, which will then begin the legal proceedings again if an indictment comes down. Okay, right. But from the sense that you get there where you are, does it, it feels like everything is ready? Like there have been lots of obviously security plans that have gone into this? Yeah, absolutely. And and look, legal experts have also said that if the district attorney, Alvin Briggs, did not think that this was going to go very far when it went to a vote, if he thought that, that the jury might vote against this, that there was a real chance that he was going to stall uh, or pause the proceedings. And he never did that. So there is a likelihood here that, that this is approaching a close here. And this is a 23-person grand jury. Only 12 on that panel need to vote in favor of an indictment for it to happen. So if that, when it does, if it does, that is where the concern is going to start, that if Trump decides to make it public, an indictment comes down, that that's where we could start to see protest in the street, which is why we are seeing so many uniformed officers on patrol in and around this complex. All right, Reggie, thank you very much for that. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Mr. President-elect, go ahead. Go ahead. Since you are attacking no, our news not you. organization, not you. Can you give us a chance? Your organization you is terrible. You are attacking our news organization. Your organization can you give is us terrible. A Let's go. Ask a question, sir. Can Quiet. You stay? Quiet. Mr. President-elect, can you give us a question? Don't be You're rude. Attacking us. Can you give us a question? I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You stay, can you stay? You are fake news, sir. How many times have we heard that, right? In the last six or seven years, pretty often, and we hear it, and it is a hallmark, actually, of something called populism. We hear a lot these days about that. About that and democracy. So what does it all mean? Well, there's a book called Has Populism Won? The War on Democracy that talks about how people don't think they are following an authoritarian leader or a totalitarian leader. But it turns out a lot of us really don't know what that means. We don't know what those definitions are. And so many members of the public are actually susceptible to that, but they don't recognize it as such. So Dan Andrash is a professor emeritus of political science at York University and the author of Has Populism One and joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. First of all, can you explain to people what exactly is it? What is populism? Well, that's really the big question. Populism really is a system of messaging and the message is uh around uh saying that the elites are evil and the people are good and the uh message of the populism is based frequently on uh hate speech and the big lies so the enemy for the populace is actually the state and uh often other elites 
Okay, and this is something, like, have we seen this throughout history? No, uh, populism has taken, has had different faces, different characters. Uh, the populism of the 19th century, which is agrarian populism, was directed against Eastern banks and monopolies and the uh, uh, Ottawa elites who use their powers to to uh, discriminate against uh, the West and other parts of the country, favoring Ontario. That's the message of the historians. And how do you think it, how does it seduce people? Like, what is it psychologically that attracts the public? Well, I think that uh, populism today really has a reserve army of, uh, a huge reserve army of voters because uh, hyper-globalization uh, in the, uh, over the last 30 years. So despite the promise that everyone was going to benefit from free trade and open markets, of course, that was, that was simply not the case. So hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs. They lost uh, the, a standard of living. Uh, they feel neglected. They feel angry. And they look to uh, charismatic leaders to lead them out of this mess. Okay, and are you seeing hallmarks of that? Like, are there other countries? Like, is, is this happening everywhere? Well, in our book, Has Populism One, of course, it is a global phenomenon today. 36 countries have elected populist governments. In opposition, the populists are uh, very significant. We're looking at India. We're looking at uh, Hungary. We're looking at Poland. Uh, we're looking at Mexico. We're looking at uh, uh, Brazil under Bolsonaro. Uh, we're looking at the United States. We're looking at Britain. So populism at a time of economic uh, uncertainty and uh, economic uh, uh, of hardship for many people following on the uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, they, ha- they have a very large audience and they have leaders. Uh, they use hate speech and social media to attack the most vulnerable people in society. Interesting. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Not all Starbucks are created equal. Now, you may think they are. Well, they look the same. The coffee you get there might be the same. But there's one on Vancouver Island that we're going to talk about that is definitely different. Why, you ask? Because it is about to become a first-of-its-kind Indigenous-operated Starbucks. It's going to be wholly operated by the Wawaikai Nation while it's still going to be a Starbucks. How does this happen? How did they bring this around? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Ronnie Chikite, who's the chief counselor of the Wawaikai Nation. Uh, Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. This sounds really exciting. How did this happen? Um, honestly, it was just having to be perfect timing, I believe. Our economic development manager was at a can-do meeting last year, and uh, some Starbucks folks were there, and they just got into talking. And before you know it, um, we had actually been looking to fill the economic development area that we have and they just got into into the conversation and they gave us the opportunity to buy the franchise and I believe we're the first indigenous owned franchise in Canada. 
that also kind of surprises me when I hear that, that this, that you're going to be the first. Does that surprise you? Oh, we were, we were shocked because we know there's lots of um, Starbucks on first nation land. And I thought some of those other nations would have already owned the franchisees. So we were, we were quite shocked to fear that we were, we were the first. Yeah. Okay. Well tell me then what goes into doing this, like making this happen. Uh, just lots of hard work and um, the collaboration between Starbucks and for them to give us the opportunity to make it more of indigenous culture in it. Um, you know, most, most franchisees are always just like a, by the box. Everything's the same. Every store you go to, you get the yeah. same experience, but they were, they were very open to us having uh, indigenous artwork throughout the building. And uh, I can't wait to see it happen. Yeah, so how do you design that? Were the things that you had to run by them, or you just have to make sure it still kind of, you know, still looks like a Starbucks? Uh, yeah, we're we're in uh, collaborating together. Um, so we will share like pictures and and things of how we want to put it throughout the store, and they will approve of what's happening. But to, from the way it's sounding, it's uh, very open to everything we're we're looking at. So it's a great honor. No kidding. Wait, uh, so what's the timeline like for this, Ronnie? I believe we just started building uh, or broke ground uh, yesterday. Uh, we had the ceremony on Monday, and we already had the, the guys digging in the ground on, on Tuesday. So it looks like maybe the fall. We're hoping by October to have it uh, open. So are you getting calls now? I would imagine that when people hear about this, they go, well, how do you do this? We want to do this too. Um, no, actually, it's it's been kind of quiet, but there has been a few news stories uh, in the last couple of days. So I guess... Uh, as it gets out there more, we will expect some calls from some other First Nations, hopefully. Yeah, you talked about economic development. How important has that been to the Waikai Nation? And how do, you, how do you find those opportunities? Like, how do you make that happen? Well, economic development is huge for our nation to, to be self-reliant uh, as we work towards treaty. But economic, um, the economic development for us has been is key. That's how we, we get ahead. And we just look forward to doing this project. So what are the next steps? Like, is this the beginning of something? Do you think, okay, we can do more? Uh, yeah, we we have a lot of ideas in the, in the queue right now. And uh, obviously having the Starbucks uh, come, it just shows that we are open for for anything to happen on, on our nation's land. And um, we just look forward to uh, having the next uh, partner come along that may give us a, an opportunity to, to build a nice business. Okay, and so is this part of a, a bigger development that is happening, Ronnie, in that area? Like, usually when you build a Starbucks, other things come along. Uh, yeah, we, we actually have quite a few um, buildings coming already uh, that, that have leased our land that are going to be developing in the next year. Um, and we're, we're still considering looking at um, possibly building a hotel. So there is lots of opportunity on the, <clears throat> on the nation's land here, and uh, this is just the first part of it. Well, that's very exciting. Listen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right. Thank you for your time. Appreciate that. That's Ronnie Chiquette, who's the chief counselor of the Waikai Nation. Uh, they are located near Campbell River over on Vancouver Island. And I tell you, I'm surprised when Ronnie tells us that, you know, there's there's other Starbucks that are on, uh, you know, indigenous lands right across the country. But this is the first one that's actually going to be indigenous own and you wonder what took so long for that to happen so good on them for making it happen 
And honestly, I would love to go there. I'd like to see how they how they incorporate that into the design. He was saying Starbucks is very open to some of the artwork and some of the things they'd like to change to better reflect the community in there. Uh, so good on them for making that happen. And yeah, this this could be a template for other communities uh, moving forward. There's 1,200 members there, and you know, Starbucks is <laughs> really is everywhere at this point, isn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. Always hear about BC's innovative tech sector, right? But what kind of projects are really being worked on? Well, quite a few actually that are so promising, they're now getting federal money to give them a bigger boost. And joining us now to talk about that is Harjeet Sajjan, Federal Minister of International Development. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Simi. How are you? Good, thank you. Okay, so what kind of projects are we talking about? So first of all, so in addition to my role in international development, I want to mention Pacific Hand. So that's my other responsibility. It's the Regional Development Agency of Canada for, for strictly for BC. So the projects that we're, we're funding, um, any from, from clean tech, uh, the biosector, um, uh, agri-tech uh, as well. And just the most recent announcement that we made was uh, over $25 million for 10 uh, companies just strictly in, in BC. So everything from, uh, from biomedical, uh, like one company, uh, Aspect Bio- Biosystems that we get funding to, they're doing 3D printing, membrane, and uh, they're about two to three years away from testing on how um, it can be placed on the pancreas, uh, on, on the pancreas uh, to help regulate uh, insulin. I mean, just cutting-edge work. And the interesting part is, it was, uh, there were two UBC students who actually started it. And the reason I want to mention this is because a lot of companies that we were put, uh, putting money into investing in, um, they share a similar story. Uh, they were studying at a university, they came up with an idea, but, and then they had the support to start a company. Uh, now they have 80 em- em- employees. I mean, there's many other, uh, uh, um, uh, like, uh, creative bits, uh, that are, um, in the software, uh, market that are enabling, you know, music and sports and entertainment. So it's a wide variety of work, but they all have a similar theme, is that how they kind of came up with an idea and now they're going with a company right here in British Columbia. How do you decide then? Obviously, you must get a lot of applications for funding, but what's the criteria here? So there's, we have different program streams. So the uh, Pacific Can itself, uh, it's about creating economic growth for profit and non-profit um, uh, organizations uh, in British Columbia. We have $110 million of core funding, and usually there's additional funding depending on, on the money that flows through the RDAs, depending on, on, on the budget. So there's, for example, this program here is, is an actual scale-up uh, uh, program. So when a business wants to scale up, say have um, uh, hire more employees, uh, they need to look at exporting um, uh, internationally. So to make the application, they have to have uh, some strong growth that, uh, uh, um, uh, in, in the past. And then our department goes through the analysis, uh, and then they have to sh- demonstrate the plan and how they, they can spend it within the time frame as well. Um, so once that, once that is done, well, they take the money, we do a follow-up uh, with them. Um, but just to let you know, uh, just in the year and a half that Pacific County started, um, with the funding that we have put into, into BC within the year and a half, 1,700 jobs, high-tech jobs, have been already created. Wow, there must be a lot of demand for this then. There is. Um, so not everybody gets accepted. However, we're not about just saying, uh, you know, an application comes in and saying yes or no. What we're trying to do is actually work with the companies and help them um, be successful. So, um, in fact, actually, in some places where companies 
are, are growing, we actually want to tap them on the shoulder. So this is one of the reasons why we're actually, uh, there used to be one office where, under Western diversification. Now through Pacific Head, we're going to have, uh, we have nine offices uh, across British Columbia. So we're touching uh, even the rural parts uh, of, the, um, of the province. So there is demand, but at the same time, what we're trying to do is actually cater support, even if a program within Pacific Union may not work, we actually want to let them know about the other departments. So, for example, through Minister Inc.'s portfolio in, uh, in, in, in trade, uh, the small and medium-sized businesses, or Minister Champagne's uh, portfolio for larger companies. So there's a lot of different programs. That, so, the, um, so what we're trying to do is not just be um, sit at the desk and just wait for applications to come. We actually were very proactive in trying to work with the companies and tap them on the shoulder when, uh, when, when we feel that they, they can actually uh, uh, grow. As well. Right. Is there continuing support then? Is this help? Is this designed to, you know, help them get over the hump? Is it designed to help them expand? Like, what is this targeted towards? All the above. Um, so it's it's helping get over the hump, especially during COVID. But the, what this is about is imagine for, this is about economic growth. So what we want to see is it's an investment in a company where there's going to be more job creation. Um, they're going to have more revenue that, that comes in. And the whole purpose of this is to making sure that we give our companies a uh, competitive advantage. So there's many companies that we've actually put um, uh, uh, funding in um, uh, over time and multiple times. So anytime that there is a need for growth, we want to be there uh, to support. Because what we found with, uh, in the past, a lot of tech companies that started uh, in BC and or in Canada, but then once they grow, they've been bought out. What we want to do is, is foster an environment within, so not only that they can actually grow, um, but what we want them to do is actually maintain uh, their you know location and expand in, in, in the province. But at the same time, look at the international market. And the reason I mention this, as my other job is international development when I travel uh, to other places, every single visit, and without a doubt, I usually you know going to difficult places where we're trying to help uh, uh, you know, vulnerable populations. I'm always wondering that there's always a problem that a BC company can solve. For example, as most recently we're talking about the uh, uh, water contamination uh, issue that uh, is a significant one, how kids uh, are getting sick all over the world because of this. Well, there's a company in BC that's using solar power, UV, uh, solar power, UV light to be able to clean water. And they, they, they're right now they're developing strictly for Canada, but we've already done made, made, uh um, uh, link them up uh, with communities in Africa uh, who can actually utilize uh, this technology. So it's, it's funny that even with my other portfolio, that's not you know they're not technically linked. I'm actually, I'm actually introducing them because uh, there's such great uh, ingenuity coming out of the province. Oh, so interesting! Thank you so much for your time this morning. Great, thank you, Sydney. Nice talking to you. Sarjeet Sajjan, Federal Minister of International Development and Pacifican, talking about local technological companies that need that extra boost and some of the advances that they are working on. This is Mornings with Simi. Now we're going to talk about child care because there are some child care providers who are raising concerns about the child care fee reduction initiative. What it means is that child care providers can't raise fees by more than 3% a year. Government says that's in order to keep it affordable uh, for parents out there. But child care providers say, well, it's actually shortchanging them. Let's talk more about this. Brittany Newber joins us now, the owner of Busy Bees Daycare. Brittany, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'll, this must seem like uh, just an amazing time to be a part of the childcare industry. Like, how many changes have you seen in the last couple of years? 
Oh, my goodness. It has been a little crazy. I'm not going to lie. I think all child care providers are kind of, you know, just trying to keep up with all the changes. All good changes, obviously. I think uh, the whole process of it just needs to be worked out a little bit better. <laughs> right. So how long have you been part of this? Like, is it the demand? Like, what's it like for your services? So basically, I am in my second year being a part of this fee reduction initiative. Um, it has been going on longer than that. Um, I just opted in for the first time last year, and uh, it was a similar process as it is to this year. Unfortunately, it is a very uh, drawn out process with a lack of communication and uh, child care providers, I feel, are just kind of feeling like we're, we're fighting the whole way just to get this simple thing done with for our parents, too, of course. Right. Can you give us an idea of the process then? What is the challenge here? Yeah. So basically, I mean, this year, uh, our new application. So basically, we have a year contract. You know, we enroll for the year and then come April, uh, the next year begins. Um, and so we received our applications in January, January 31st, and most child care providers filled out promptly and sent in. Um, some were no fee increases, some were the 3% increases, some were requesting a little bit more than the 3% increase, and most child care facilities are still waiting for their approval. And we're on, you know, March 22nd already, so... And what does that mean? If you don't get approval, what kind of impact does that have? So if a child care facility does not get approval, that means that all of that money that the government now pays to each facility, they go without for that month. So there are some small centers, such as myself, that are out thousands, but there are some facilities that are out hundreds of thousands of dollars. And trying to track down and communicate with parents that they now owe this extra money only to then eventually be approved and have to go back and refund all these parents is just so much added work for these facilities and childcare providers. Wow, that, that would be awful. So what is the word from the government on this, Brittany? So unfortunately, uh, the communication with the government has been a little bit rough. Um, we receive, you know, generic emails causing a little bit of panic with childcare providers. It states, you know, action is required. So then we sign in to kind of view what's happening and there's nothing to be seen. So then we then try to give them a call, but their lines are so busy that you basically just get booted off. You can't even go on hold for hours. You can't even get a call back. You just have to keep trying to call over and over again. It took me three days to get through to them only for them to say, Oh no, that's a generic email. Just disregard. So, (laughs) so when you did get a hold of them, like, are you getting processed? Is it coming? Uh, unfortunately, I think that all the people that we're speaking to are just so overwhelmed with the amount of calls that every time you call, you kind of get a different answer. And it's just often we're told it's in the process. Trust the process and it will happen. And unfortunately, people can't pay their bills and it's a little bit more than trust the process at this point. So yeah, no kidding. Do you know how many daycares are kind of in this boat? Um, Honestly, I don't know an exact number. Um, I do know that, you know, I am uh, lucky enough to be a part of a few groups of childcare providers 
And I would say that there's anywhere from 56 to 75% of daycares that are not approved or have received temporary approval. And the temporary approval is basically, you know, if you lower your fees, we'll approve you. Or if you push your uh, fee increase date to a later date, then we'll approve you until that date. So, yeah. <laughs> Boy, this is very challenging. So when you talk about having to go back to the parents then and saying, okay, well, we haven't got this and now this is what you're going to have to pay. What is that price difference then that some parents perhaps are, are having sprung on them? Well, it's hundreds of dollars. I mean, it is different depending on a month. Yeah. So for April, I mean, essentially people will be paying double what they would normally pay almost. So that's a huge hit for parents. Um, And it's, Unfortunately, it comes back to the child care provider, but it is completely out of our control because most child care providers have filled out their applications promptly within days of receiving it. And the government, unfortunately, wasn't able to approve them by the promised date of March 15th. So everyone's just left scrambling now. Yeah, let's talk about the 3% increase. I know the government says, okay, well, that's the max that we allow because we're trying to keep things low. But what kind of challenges do you face in kind of keeping things at that 3%? You know, it is a struggle. You can ask every childcare provider. Um, Right now, there's an ECE shortage all across BC. So Centres are having to shut down. Uh, Centres are having to close rooms because they don't have enough staff. They can't pay them enough, a living wage, for them to continue working. So without that 3% increase, I don't know how daycares are supposed to survive, let alone everything has increased. The cost of living, the cost of insurances, the cost of groceries, supplies. So the 3% is in my opinion, not something that is wanted. It's something that's needed in order to keep people's businesses alive. What would be a, a more a better number for you that would help you relax a little bit in terms of you think, okay, I can live with this increase? Well, the thing for me is uh, a lot of people who opted in early, uh, we opted in in the 70th percentile of uh, the fee, what was charged in our area. Um, most recent applicants of this year are able to opt in at an 80 percentile of the area. That's 10 percent difference in fees, which is a huge deal. Even just being able to meet that 80th percentile, like the new applicants, would make the world of difference for child care providers. Wow, that is amazing. Okay, so we're hoping to talk to the minister about this, Brittany. What would be your message to her? My message and my plea would be just for better communication and more of an understanding of where child care providers are coming from. The whole reason why we got into this fee reduction initiative is for our parents. We want to be able to provide them with an affordable rate for child care. And we want to be able to do that while still being able to keep our daycares open. So just open communication and just more of an understanding that we're not trying to gouge anybody. We're we're just trying to make it doable. Uh, Brittany, thank you so much for talking to us this morning.
Thanks so much for having me. That's Brittany Neuber, who's the owner of Busy Bees Daycare, talking about the challenges and just getting this administrative paperwork done so they can get uh, that money from the provincial government to subsidize the daycare. I can't imagine how frustrating that is for parents. Like, not only that, you don't have the money to all of a sudden pay double your childcare fee for one month. Times are tight out there. Now, yes, we do hope to talk to the minister about this uh, tomorrow on the show. But if you're a parent who's been impacted by this, a childcare operator, let me hear from you, Simi at cknw.com.